In Romans chapter 9, verse, or excuse me, chapter 9 through 11, Paul has been discussing uh, the salvation that God's provided to the world, but he's also discussing how do we deal with this issue of salvation through Jesus, and also how do we deal with God's relationship to the nation of Israel. And this, to many Christians, is not something they know about. But it's lined out pretty clearly in chapter 9 through 11. And he talks about how God is not done with the nation of Israel. As a matter of fact, even their rejection of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, plays a part in his plan for salvation for the world. And so last week we kind of came to that conclusion at around verse 12 to 13 in Romans 11 that God has a purpose in all circumstances. And actually we put up a... Uh, a, a verse this morning, it was a, a plate that actually Sherry had that says in First Thessalonians, it says, Give thanks in everything, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. And I need to remember that because not everything in life, actually most things in life are very hard. And, and if there's anything that I could say about Sherry is that she gave thanks in all circumstances. We got to read some things that she had written and there was no idea of self-pity in there. And what you find when you can be thankful in all situations is you learn to be content. Now, if there's anything that you can find in the world, it's a great massive amount of people who are discontent. I mean, we can't stand to have the same car for a certain amount of time. We want, you know, the newest, the latest, and the greatest, the next item they've came out with that tastes like bacon. We want that. You know, like we always are on to something new. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it can be if that's where we find our peace and our joy. And so God tells us in his word that if we can be thankful in all situations, then we can actually not learn to see our situation as much as we can learn to see how big our God is. And so Paul has done this. If we get to chapter 11 of Romans, we've seen that God, Paul's got this vision of how big and powerful and mighty and wise that God is and how even in man's wrath, he can bring glory to himself. That blows me away. So God has a purpose in all circumstances, and not one is ever without meaning or reason. He's not capricious with pain and trials and suffering. Paul's heart is broken for his own people. We saw that in the beginning of Romans chapter 9. Paul has a broken heart for the nation of Israel. He has a broken heart for them because, number one, he came from them. They're his family. And we all have family that perhaps don't know the Lord. Our hearts should be broken for them. And number two, his heart is broken for them because he knows that God has a way better purpose for them. And so, though his heart is broken and he's grieved for the rejection of the Messiah, he's able to see that good is able to be brought from such a tragedy. And I love this because true believers in the, in the Lord as they mature, we'll learn to find that God has blessings even in the midst of tragedy. And through their fall, salvation has come to us. Most of us in here would be able to go back to our lineage. We're Gentiles. We're not Jewish. We're not from the Israelites. We don't really have any reason to expect God to bless us because he promised, because he didn't. He did promise, however, that Abraham, through his seed, would bless all of the nations. And so we see this unfolding. So through their fall, through their rejection of Christ, salvation has come to the Gentiles for the purposes that God planned. His purposes are, number one, salvation to the ends of the earth. 
free gift offered to the whole world. John 3, 16, God so loved the world, he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. But then, number two, his second purpose is going to sound a little funky to us. To provoke the nation of Israel to be jealous. Now, does God want us to live lives and be jealous? Uh, No, not necessarily. But in this case, yes, he wants people to be jealous of the relationship and the salvation and the forgiveness that we've experienced through God. We have peace with God. We have peace with God through his son atoning for our sin. And that should cause us to have lives full of joy that is evident to the rest of the world. But let me give you an example of a, a place where jealousy is good. The other night we were sitting at the table and we were eating dinner. And Lucy, though most of the time she's a very good eater, sometimes she sits there and gets distracted by all kinds of other things and forgets that we're sitting down to eat. That's the purpose for us being at the table. Now we can have discussions and all those other things, but she needs to eat, right? To be able to be healthy, you've got to eat enough food. And so Lucy's sitting there. And sometimes she kind of picks at her food and she doesn't eat it. And then she starts taking the yogurt or whatever it is and drawing paintings on the table. And she's like, hey, cool, check it out. It's finger paint time. But it's not finger paint time. That's food. It's to sustain her body. And so she doesn't know what's the best for her. So sometimes, dad, being what a dad is, I reach over to her plate and I say, can I have some? And sometimes she's like, she's real sweet. She's like, yeah, go for it. I don't want it. But sometimes... I go to grab it, and she goes, no, that's mine, and starts shoveling it down her gullet. That's good, right? Because my end goal is to get her to eat. So I provoke her to jealousy so that she'll get the nutrients she needs to sustain her body. And God, in the same way, is going, hey, you guys are distracted, Israel. You've missed the point. It's not about doing the do's and don'ts. It's about having a heart willing and desiring to have a relationship with your God. You've made it about all these extremities, all these outward actions, but what God is desiring of you is your heart. He wants your heart to worship Him and Him alone, not to go after other gods, not to do the things that other gods tell you, but to put them away and to focus on your relationship with Him. And since you haven't done that, I'm going to give what you have turned away and said, yucky, I don't like that meal, and I'm going to give it to the Gentiles in order to provoke you to jealousy that you'll get what I plan for you, my best. And I love this because the Lord always has his best in mind. He doesn't want something that's good to become the enemy of what is best. Sometimes I think we accept what's good. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's not God's best. And so God's purpose for them is that they would be saved as well. And Paul clearly communicates this through the pen of you know, through being inspired by the Holy Spirit. So in verse 12 of chapter 11, he continues on. In verse 11, he said, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not, but through their fall to provoke, excuse me, through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Verse 12, now if their fall is riches or blessing for the world, And their failure riches for us as Gentiles. Remember, he's writing to the Romans, primarily Gentiles. How much more would the blessing be if they came to their fullness? If they understood their purpose? If they understood that the Messiah, 
That was the one they were looking for. It's all about the Old Testament revealing and promising, I'm going to send you a Savior. Here he is. Jesus came to his own and they received him not. And the Lord's like, I'm not done with you. I'm going to keep hounding you until you see what my purpose is. And then in verse 13, he says, For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. Remember, Paul, is a, he's a Jew, but God's purpose was for him was to be an apostle from the Jews to the Gentiles to proclaim salvation to the ends of the earth through Jesus Christ. He says, I magnify my ministry if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. So Paul was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles and his preaching salvation to the Gentiles was part of the way that God was provoking his own people to jealousy. God has plans and he uses his people to fulfill his plans. If provoking them to jealousy was God's plan, Paul knew this and he wanted to be a part of it. Sometimes people are like, well, what's God's will for my life? I don't know. Read his word. What does he want to do? And then get in line with you, how, the ways that you see him working wherever you are doing that. But where did this unction from Paul come from to go to the Gentiles and provoke them to jealousy? How did he know that was God's plan? Well, in the beginning of chapter 9 of Romans, he, he said he had a burden and he prayed about it. He spent time with the Father, getting to know the heart of the Father and so God imparted his desires to Paul. Psalm 37 says that. He says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Excuse me. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Well, that doesn't mean that he's going to give you whatever you want. What it means is, is as, as you get used to your, your discussion, your, your prayer time, and you listen to his voice, his desires will become your desire. We were talking about this last night. We were talking about how we can in our environment soak up our environment and then we become, that environment becomes part of us. Like a pickle. You know, what do you, how do you make pickles? You take a cucumber and you put it in vinegar and some other stuff. Sometimes they got dill in there. Sometimes they got, you know, you got sweet pickles, you got bread and butter, you got your dill. And then sometimes Kelly had this thing last night we were eating and it's like got allspice and like it's kind of it turns it red and she really likes them. I don't get it, but, you know, more power to her. She can have them. You know, I like spicy pickles. She likes sweet and, like, cinnamony pickles. I, don't, I didn't even know they had those. But when you put that cucumber in that solution, it pickles it. Obviously, that's why we call them pickles. But all of the nutrients, all of the, the stuff that's in there, the vinegar, the flavors, the seasonings, they soak into that cucumber. And then when you taste the cucumber, you taste its environment. If you spend all of your time taking in the ways of the world and, and sinfulness, guess what you're going to be soaked in with? The ways of the world and sinfulness. But what the Lord does is he says, spend time with me and I will make you salt and light. I will preserve you through this world, not around it, but through it. And, and when he fills us with purity and he purifies our hearts and our minds, he fills us with the word of God we become like him, and then when we talk to people, when we react to situations or Supreme Court rulings, we react not out of the flesh, but with his heart, with his desires. His desires that no one should perish but have everlasting life. Now, we can't control their reaction, but we can control how we approach them and how we love them. And that's God's desire for us. So Paul had this. He had the desire not... 
his desire for the nation of Israel, but God's. So how did he come to this? Number one, prayer. Number two, he also came from his own personal experience. He said, I'm from them. If God can save me, he can save anybody. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, he actually says that. He says, basically, you know, I got saved. God saved me. He pulled me out of the miry clay so that I would be an example to everyone else who would come to believe that if God can save me, he can save anybody. Paul was, Paul was humble, but he was realistic. He's like, hey, without Jesus, you know what I was doing? I was persecuting Christians. And while I was doing that, God spoke to me and said, what are you doing, Paul? You think you're for me, but you, the things you're doing are actually against me. And God, in his mercy, turned him around. And now, here he is. He's got a heart for the Jews to be saved. So, he, he came to this from his personal experience. If he provoked, And that's what he's told him. How do I know that, that God's not done with the nation of Israel? Paul said, because I'm an Israelite of the flesh, born from the descendants of Abraham, and God saved me. So I know that God's not done with them. Salvation is for them as well. So what is his method? What, what's Paul's method for this? Well, I, I find it in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. We're on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said this, he said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, but they may glorify God who is in heaven. They looked at Paul and the way he was acting now, and they're like, man, this is not the Paul I remember that was holding the coats of the guys that were stoning Stephen in Acts chapter 6. This is the Paul that's been redeemed and recognizes that all men need to be saved in order to have anything redeeming in their life. He loves people that don't love him. When for Paul to preach to the Gentiles to provoke the Jews meant that he loved the Jews enough to do God's plan. And the Jews had tried to stone him to death. If you remember our study in Acts, Paul went into one of the cities and they were like, hey, we love this guy. And they started, and, but when they found out that he wasn't really for what they believed, they started stoning him literally with rocks until they thought he was dead. They drug him out of the city Many people believe that he was actually dead. He was left for dead. And that God raised him up. And then he walks back into the city and begins preaching again. That's God. That's resurrection power. That's someone who can't be stopped because he's not thwarted by man's plans. Because he's not working for man's opinion or privilege or his agreement with him. He's trying to do what God gave him to do. And so, verse 15. For if there, the Jews, being cast away, is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If God's blessed the world through the Jews rejecting the Messiah, how much more will he bless the world when the Jews receive salvation through the Messiah? How much more their fullness? How much more when they are set up and they fulfill their purpose? He says to the Gentiles, yes, Jewish rejection of Jesus was made into a blessing for you, but consider how great a blessing their acceptance of Jesus will be. And then he gives two analogies. So in verse um, 16, he says, For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the same root and the fatness of the olive tree, don't boast against the branches, but if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. 
So you're like, what in the heck is that about? Well, he's talking about branches and first fruit. I'm not a farmer. I don't know what you're, I'm not a vineyard dresser. I'm not, that's not where I come from. Well, he's speaking to them in terms they would understand. They come from an agrarian society, meaning they were all farmers. They were all vine tenders. They were, that's what they did. And so they had olive trees everywhere. This is a picture that would be very aware to them. In the Garden of Gethsemane, they have these trees, they're olive trees, and they grow and they grow and there's, there's so much to learn about them. If you ever get the chance to go to Israel, go to the garden and listen to somebody talk about how they actually tend olive trees. But he, he gives two analogies. Number one, the fruit, the fruit that comes from something, and then the root. The first fruit is actually a, a, a phrase that means when they would go out and sow their fields and then they would grow up, there would be fruit from the harvest, right? But the first plants or the first wheat or the first olives or the first whatever that they would pick, they would gather them together and they would make them an offering to the Lord to say, Lord, we recognize that this, this soil that you've tended here and you've given us and all these seeds that have grown up and produced something that we couldn't do any of it without your help. And so we're, we're giving it to you. We're, everything of the first fruits we're giving back to you because we, we just want to worship you for how you've provided for us. And so the first fruit, like a field in harvest time, is the same thing that happened in the early church. God sent the Holy Spirit, and if you remember on the day of Pentecost, there was this first fruit. The Spirit came and indwelled in, in the people that heard the word and believed in Jesus. And that was the first fruits. There was a harvest that was brought up. Remember Jesus said this, he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. He talked about those who receive salvation as a harvest, raised up. Well, what does the harvest come from but the seed? Jesus said, unless a seed gives itself up and goes down and allows itself to be put under the soil, there can be no increase. There can be no harvest. Well, what was the seed for the church but Jesus Christ himself? He was the seed. God planted him in the soil. He was buried in the ground and then he was the first fruits of the resurrection. And so we, the church, the early church, the beginning, the first fruits was a group of people that was primarily Jewish. We don't think about that. We think about Judaism. We think about Christianity. We go, well, those are two separate things. But our Savior was Jewish. He went to the feasts. He celebrated Pentecost and the, the Feast of Weeks and all those things. And so Jesus being the first fruit and the church being the harvest, the first fruit, the group was full of Jewish Christians. And this was good for the church because Jewish people studied the Torah or the law and they had all the prophecies of the Old Testament that explained that the Messiah would come, his promises to the nation of Israel. And so when they have the the Old Testament, and can explain that all of these things led up to Christ, the genealogies, the prophecies, the correction, all of those things, the sacrifices, they're all about Jesus. They're not just trivial things. And so when they can explain that to us as Christians and give us that knowledge, it gives us a better understanding of the faith that we've inherited through their faith. Abraham, his faith was accounted to him for righteousness just like us. Moses, his faith, and all the way through, we pass it on to the next generation. And so the Jewish people, when they come to belief, when they come to faith, they have something to offer, this rich heritage that wasn't just about exterior stuff, it was about Jesus, 
that they can show us, they can explain to us, and so much more. Our faith is instilled. It's, it's put in concrete. Every time you learn another truth about the Lord, it just strengthens our, our trust in Him. And then there's the analogy of the root. And the root is, we all know, something that's underneath the ground that no one sees, and yet it's very vital to the life of any living thing. It gives it stability. If you think about a tree, a tree can't just, you know, it, it has to be rooted in the ground in order to, number one, hold up the tree, but it's also getting nutrients. It's getting water. Now, obviously, the, the, the leaves also somehow translate UV rays into, into nutrients and stuff, too. But the roots, if they're not, you can have all the, the sunlight you want, but if the roots aren't in the ground, they can't get moisture. They can't get nutrients from the soil. And so there needs to be this foundation that the tree is planted in. And so he gives that analogy of the root, where the source of all the life of the tree comes from. And if that tree is not rooted, it will die. So the analogy of the plants are both tied together because without any root, you can have no fruit, right? And so some of the natural branches he explained in verse 17, some of the branches were broken off. These branches were the nation of Israel. Some of the, the unbelief and the, the disobedience that they had towards the Lord, it caused them to be broken off. And, and, but realize that the breaking off of those branches, those natural branches, afforded us places to be grafted in. He uses this term of being grafted in. Now, if you've ever done anything with horticulture, you would understand, and I'm just learning this. I don't have a background in horticulture. Some of, some of you might you know, have some better ideas about it, but you don't take a branch and break it off and then take a branch from another tree and just sew it on there and it start growing. Do you? Can anybody say otherwise? You can't do that. It's unnatural. So he says there, some of the natural branches of the Israelites were broken off. Natural branches being broken off means room for the wild branches. You and I are wild branches. And most of us, our testimonies, you go, yeah, I come from a wild, a wild branch. You know, whether my family heritage or my story, like there was nothing godly about my godly heritage. There wasn't. You know, if anything, I married into a godly heritage, but... Even their godly heritage had to start somewhere. It started full of sin and rejection and rebellion of God. But he says we're wild branches. And we wild branches have been grafted in to the vine of God. Though not natural branches, we've become partakers of the natural branches of the root. The supply of life. What is the root? Well, the root is Jesus Christ. To anchor your life to anything else means that it would be unstable. It won't always have supply. God is the eternal supply. So in light of these truths, he says there, don't boast against the branches that are surrounding you. There are Jewish people, Jewish Christians, and there are also Jews who have been broken off. Don't boast against them because the only reason you're here is by the grace of God. It's a miraculous thing if you can take a branch from another tree and graft it into a, 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 a groomed tree and then it still remain growing. Think about it. Even in our bodies, you see people that have to get skin grafts. Well, it never looks like it once did, does it? Sometimes it looks mutilated, but you still have skin, so it works. But you've got to take medication so your body won't reject that skin graft. Think about organs. You know, somebody needs a liver or kidneys or something, to, a vital organ to sustain them. Many times they get 
an organ donated to them. It comes in the cooler, it says, you know, keep cold, biohazard, all that stuff, and then they, they sew it into you. But what you don't think about, if you've never been around somebody that's done that, they have to take medicine the rest of their life so that their body won't reject the organ. Because that's the case sometimes. They get an organ that's closest match they can find, and for some reason, the body fights it off as if it's an infection rather than a blessing. And so us being grafted in unnaturally can be explained in no other way than God did it. God's miraculous power in doing so. Because we don't have to take medicine to stay in the vine. We just have to stay there. We have to abide. And so he says that. He says, don't boast. So we continue on that same theme in verse 19. He says, you will say then that branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. He says, Good job. Number verse 20. Well said, because of unbelief, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. He says, but be careful. He warns us. He says, don't be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Now, this is not something where we're to fear the losing of our salvation. This is to fear whether or not we will continue to abide in the vine because of unbelief. If they were broken off because of unbelief and they were part of the natural branches of the tree tied into the root of, of their salvation, how much more are we being grafted in wild olive branches? How, would, how much easier would it be for him to break us off? You know, We don't really play a vital role. We're the only ones that it doesn't make sense that we're there. So he says, be careful. Don't boast against the branches for he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and the severity, or that word actually means sternness. Consider the goodness and the sternness of God on those who fell, severity or sternness, but toward you, consider his goodness if you continue in his goodness. See, God's goodness towards us is a gift. It's free, but we somehow have to continue in it. And we'll look at that later in John chapter 15, where he tells us to abide in the vine. He says, otherwise, you also will be cut off. So in verse 22, or 19 through 22, we might be tempted to say, well, the Jews didn't believe, so what's their problem? And, and in a way, we might mock them. And in church history, that's happened. Christians have had the wrong view of the Jews, the Israelites, and so they haven't blessed them. Well, what was God's promise to Abraham? He says, those who bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. And look what happened in the nation of Israel, or excuse me, the nation of Germany after the Holocaust. There was there was there was some fallout from that. They they're still, you know, they were they took a long time to come back from that. The Lord can't bless a nation who is stabbing the apple of his eye. Israel is called that in scripture, the apple of God's eye. You know who's the apple of my eye? Lucy. Somebody messes with Lucy, they're not going to be blessed. There's going to be consequences. And God's the same way with his children. He's got this jealousy for them. And so we need to be careful how we deal with them as a nation. God's not done with them, and he's blessed us through them. Don't boast against them. As a matter of fact, to put personal application, sometimes we see others who are in sin or living in a lifestyle of sin, and we're quick to boast against them, maybe even talk about them maliciously. But in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul warns us even of that kind of boasting. He says there, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, you are more mature than them, 
restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself also, because you can also be tempted. We have to be careful in how we deal with others who are rejecting God's, you know, God's standard. That we have to approach them gently because we also can be tempted. We can kind of try to deal with the speck in their eye, like Jesus said, and not deal with the two by four that's sticking out of ours, the plank. But he also doesn't say, don't judge at all. See, this is a misconception, and non-believers quote this one all the time. Judge not, lest you be judged. Well, no, he's, what he's saying is, you need to judge yourselves so that you won't be judged. You need to be constantly taking a spiritual inventory. Where am I at, Lord? What do I need to be dealing with? So that when you go to approach someone who is maybe ensnared by sin, you don't just not say anything and leave them in the trap, but you gently restore them, knowing what it's like to be restored yourself. You know, and I think this is, this is important that we get this, because when Jesus said, don't try to deal with the speck in someone else's eye, he said, until you've dealt with the two by four or the plank sticking out of your eye. We need to deal ruthlessly with sin. We need to let God purify us so that we can be a purifying agent, so we can hold others accountable and lift them up in prayer and, and perhaps be used by God to speak to them something they didn't even see. Sin blinds us. Sin gives us blind spots we don't see. And we need the body of Christ around us going, hey, this is an issue in your life and it's hindering you from experiencing true joy and fellowship with the Lord. We're not like an oak tree. We're not meant to be dwelling by ourselves, strong and stout and withstanding storms. We're meant to be more like redwoods. Now, we don't have redwoods around here, but if you've ever been around a redwood grove, you know how they grow? They don't grow strong and deep. If you saw a redwood out in the middle of a field, one of our storms came through, not a strong one, but a regular one, guess what would happen? It would blow over. Now, these are the biggest trees that we can think of, at least in the States. If you go see a California redwood, you'll notice that they, their roots are not deep, but they all tie into one another. And the body of Christ is more like a redwood than an oak. We all need to be tied into Jesus, and as a result of that, tied into each other. Like the chief cornerstone that he's described as is in the corner of the building. It's what makes it square and right and true and strong. But all the other blocks are just as important because they all tie into him and corporately they make the building. So the reality is, is we need to be like those redwoods. We need to be tied into the vine, into Jesus, but tied into each other. And as a result of that, God uses us to keep each other accountable, to purify each other's lives according to his plan. We've got to be careful. We don't want to do it with zeal and without love, but we also need to make sure that we do love them enough to tell them the truth. Love without truth is hypocrisy, and truth without love is brutal. They need to both be there together. That's why it's blowing me away, some of the, the things that are going on. We're getting ready to be told you can't tell people that sin is sin when it comes to the, the sake of this current Supreme Court ruling. You know, People are like, well, what's the big deal? They're going to let them marry. Well, they're going to legislate it, and then they're going to say, Christians, you can't have your freedom of speech, but they can. Now, this is not something to holler about. That's what secular government does. But we also need to realize that when they tell us you can't say that, we have to tell them, hey, if I don't say it, it proves that I don't love you. When Lucy gets ready to run out into the street, and I say, don't run into the street, you can get hurt there, it's going to be bad for you. 
it's, it would be because I don't love her. And so us telling someone, hey, this sin not only will damage you spiritually, but also physically, and it's been proven, guess what? We're telling them that because we love them. Now, there are many groups, like in Kansas City, that don't tell them anything because they love them. They're trying to bash them with baseball bats rather than explain to them that the gospel can save them too, just like it did us, because our sin's no worse. You know, God saves sinners. He came for sinners. And so, off of my harangue now. <laughs> so Paul warns the Gentiles in Rome, don't be haughty or prideful, but live in the healthy fear of the Lord. Don't fall to the same temptation of unbelief that Israelites did, but learn from it. Be warned. Don't become so familiar with the Lord that you lose your sense of the awe and the reverence and the greatness of God. They got used to God being their God and they became so familiar that they lost the awe and the wonder that they once had. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he describes the Lord. There's a character in there. If you've seen the movies or read the books, they're amazing. Uh, read the books, but if you're not a book reader, watch the movies. They're just as good. Uh, people will argue with me on that. But in there, there's a character by the name of Aslan, and he has the character and, and the attributes. He's supposed to be like God. And so he's the, the one that comes and saves the people and the animals of the kingdom. And if you don't know the whole story, it's not that big of a deal, but, but watch it. But C.S. Lewis wrote in this book, it's an allegory, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. There's a lion named Aslan. And in one passage, a beaver, who of course talks, because animals talk in this movie, he uh, describes him to a visiting curious little girl. She came through the wardrobe into this world. And she's describing the king of that land who once was the king and, and now other people have taken over, but he's coming back. It's a lot like Jesus, right? And he's describing this Aslan to this little girl. And she says, she says um, he, he describes him and he says he's a lion. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. And the little girl replies to this beaver and says, Oh, well, I thought he was a man. Is he safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Of course, you can imagine a little girl saying this because we know what lions are. And the beaver replied, Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he is good. He's the king. And there's no better description of our God. Our God is not safe. He is holy. He's to be feared and reverenced and in awe of. But he's also good. He came to save us. He demonstrated that he's, a, he's fully capable of love. Romans chapter 5 verse 8. He, he demonstrated his own love towards us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ wouldn't die for us if our, the penalty for our sin wasn't something that he needed to jump in front of for us. It's death. Death is something that is very permanent. So God sent his son to jump in front of the bus for us. And how soon we forget what we're talking about when we speak of the Lord. He's anything but safe, but he is good. Verse 22 says that, Therefore consider the goodness and the sternness of God on those who fell. Sternness, but toward you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. So we need to live. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So, Let's kind of read through these last passages and I'll just make a few comments. Verse 23 says, And they also, the Jews, if they do not continue in unbelief, they will be grafted in. They'll be grafted in as well. 
for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted in contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be able to be grafted in to their own olive tree? Basically, he's going to bring them back home. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. But blindness, in part, has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles. Until the last Gentile is saved, there's a group of Jews who will be blinded by the Lord for our blessing. And then once all the Gentiles who are going to be saved are saved, then God will open their eyes. They will look upon the one whom they have pierced and they will say, where did you get these wounds? And Jesus is going to say, I got them in the house of my brethren. I went to my own people and this is how I was put to death. But that's okay because he's going to express to them, hey, it was for you too. This is not a sin that can be unforgiven. So verse 26, he quotes from Isaiah and he says, So also Israel will be saved that as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob for this is my covenant or my promise with them and when I take away their sins. Verse 28, concerning the gospel, at this point they're enemies for your sake, but concerning the election or being chosen, they are beloved for your sake, for the sake of the fathers. In other words, the promises God made. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God promises something, he doesn't snatch it back and say, just kidding. They're irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, gives us as an example, he says, you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. And then he kind of ends with a word of worship. Warning. And God chastising us and teaching us to be aware of our own sinful nature should also lead us to worship. He says there, Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past our finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? And he quotes from Isaiah. Or who has become the counselor of the Lord? God doesn't get wisdom from other people. He is the source of wisdom. Or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? The answer, no one. No one can pay, God doesn't have to pay us back. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever and ever, amen. Only God could take this tragedy of God being rejected by the Jews, his own people that he chose out of the darkness, brought him into the light, and bring forth salvation to others who don't believe, and by their salvation, draw them back to him and reconcile. Reconciliation, the ministry of bringing those things that have been separated back together. Only God could use all of this ridiculousness, all of this rejection and rebellion, to bring salvation not only to us, but also to his own people who have rejected him, though they've experienced all the light that the world has to offer. So, let me ask you, are you in this spot? Do you see what God's plan is? Do you see that he's warning us to be careful not to boast? To, to treat the Jews, even if it's just praying for the salvation of the nation of Israel, 
And that will bring blessing to the world when they come to their fullness. But until then, what are we to do? Occupy until they come. Occupy until Jesus returns. Fulfill the Great Commission. Go to all the world and share the gospel. Be a blessing to one another. Learn what the scripture has to say. Let God purify your life and then be a purifying element in others' lives. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify our God who is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, your, um, your wisdom is definitely far beyond our finding out. And uh, we, we can't offer to you anything that you haven't first given us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for, uh, for a time offering this window of salvation to us as Gentiles. Thank you that you're not finished or giving up with your own people, but that through our salvation, you're actually going to bless them back. And Lord, it, it's kind of confusing. It's hard to understand. But I thank you that I don't have to be able to explain every little minute detail about your love for us, but I, I can know that it's true. I don't have to see to believe it. But even now, we're seeing the fulfillment of your promises as the nation of Israel came back to being after being conquered and separated and taken to other lands. You brought them all back together and the culmination of Israel, they're all coming back and one day you're going to open their eyes and they're going to receive the Messiah that they missed when he first came as a carpenter boy. Lord, thank you for your plans being far beyond our reach and uh, thank you at the same time that you give us a little insight so that we can continue to live on and to pray for, for the salvation of Israel. Lord, please just take these words this morning, apply them to our hearts, help us to gain understanding of your big picture, but also, Lord, I pray that the, the teachings and the truths that were taught today would minister to us individually and they would be purifying agents from your mouth. Lord, have your way with us. In Jesus' name, amen.